Animals are a wonderful part of God's creation. Some are wild and exotic, while others are cute and cuddly. And then there are the ones that invade and destroy other creatures. Why do we see such varied behavior in the animal kingdom? Stay tuned. They become blood-sucking finches. That's an interesting concept, isn't it? They're sort of a flying piranha. This is Science, Scripture, and Salvation, a creation radio journal. I'm Chris O'Brien with the Institute for Creation Research. There are all different types of animal invaders in different areas of the world and with varying effects on their environment. Many of these creatures survive by taking over another animal's space or even its body. What are some of these vicious varmints and where do they live? Please stay tuned for the next 15 minutes as we investigate animal invaders and learn about some fascinating wildlife. Not all animal invasions cause harm to one species and health to the other. But today, we're going to focus on some that do, where one animal exercises dominance and control over another. Dr. Ken Cumming is a biology professor at the ICR Graduate School. He talks about one such type of animal invasion. In the north rim of the Grand Canyon, the kaibab deer were, in the past, controlled by the mountain lion. And in doing so, there was a nice equilibrium established where the lions would eat so many of the deer, especially the ones that were lame and halt. That way kept the number of deer in check. And this was a what we call a natural situation uh, where the design of the ecosystem is such as to keep populations of lions at a reasonable level and keep the deer at a reasonable level. Dr. Dennis England is professor of biology at the Master's College in California. He tells us about a certain type of trout that is being invaded. One of the areas of concern right now are certain native species of cutthroat trout that live in many of the headwaters of the Snake River that feeds into the Colorado. The cutthroat in the high mountain areas of Yellowstone Park are a very important population. As well, they feed a number of wildlife in that area, including the bear and the osprey. And there's a number of threats to this population. Now, it's quite interesting that one of them comes in the form of a parasite. It's a roundworm, a tiny roundworm, that first lives in a snail in the mud along some of the tributaries feeding into Yellowstone Lake. And when the roundworm is ready for its next stage in life, it leaves the snail and invades the very young cutthroat trout. As it gets into the gill structures of the trout, it starts to burrow into the cartilage in a skeleton before it actually becomes hard and ossified. And the little roundworm then tunnels itself by eating the cartilage up into the brain tissue of the fish and into the spinal cord. And the damage causes the fish to swim in a circular pattern and it can't straighten itself out. So they call this the whirling disease. But the roundworm is not the only predator of the cutthroat trout. Another aspect has been the introduction of what's called lake trout. Now, lake trout are quite common in many areas in the country, but they don't coexist well with cutthroat. The difference is that cutthroat are very shallow water fish. They live in the cold, shallow waters of the rivers and streams. But the lake trout lives in the deep water of Yellowstone Lake and many other lakes. Now the problem is that the lake trout eats the cutthroat trout. I have seen a cutthroat trout inside of a lake trout that's about half the body length of the lake trout. They're very serious predators. 
And these invaders are also harming other creatures. Now the problem is when the bear and the osprey and other organisms feed on the cutthroat trout, they've got a problem because they can't go 200 feet in the lake to get the lake trout. They can only get the cutthroat trout that lives in the shallow waters. But if the lake trout are eating the cutthroat trout, then you've got a serious problem. The bear and the osprey and other organisms lose their food. Cindy Carlson holds degrees in zoology and biology and is an ICR public information officer. She tells us another interesting animal invader is a bird with peculiar nesting habits. Cuculiformes, which is the order of cuckoos. And they are parasitic brooders, which means many of them lay eggs in other birds' nests. There are 127 species under the order Cuculiformes, and in the family Cuculidae, there are 127 species. 45 of these species place their eggs in other birds' nests. These types of cuckoos live mostly in Europe, Asia, and Africa. So how do they invade other birds' nests? The European cuckoo will find a nest. She will come into a territory, and she will spy out the land, and she will find a nest that is appropriate for her to lay her egg. And when the host female is gone from the nest, she will go down, pick up one of the host eggs in her mouth, lay her own egg, and carry the host species egg away and eat it as a reward for finding a good nest. Now, she will do this over and over to different nests. Between 10 and 25 nests, she will bring her own egg into that nest. But is the cuckoo particular in choosing which nest to invade? Many of them have specific hosts, and the European cuckoo is in the Dunnock or reed warbler host. There's two for the European cuckoo. There are cuckoos in Africa, and we're talking old world, so one is called the brown babbler, has only one host, which is the fork-tailed drongo. And, of course, these all sound strange because they're in other countries. The deodaric cuckoo has 24 host species. So there's a variety. So what happens when the European baby cuckoo emerges from its egg? When the nestling hatches, it's completely bare. It doesn't even have down on it. And it begins to thrash about that nest. And when the egg of the host species touches its back, the nestling has a little hollow back. And the egg nestles in that spot. And the nestling will edge it over to the edge of the nest, climb the sides, and pitch the host egg out of the nest. This little cuckoo nestling will continue to do that until all the eggs are out of the nest. This is the usual manner that cuckoo nestlings act. They will eject all the eggs. But the offspring of some other cuckoos that lay their eggs in crow's nests have a different way of disposing of the competition. And these will not eject the eggs. In this case, though, the cuckoo nestling is more active and grows faster, and it will trample the crow babies that are there and kill them that way or simply steal most of their food so that they starve. So either way, the end result is the death of the babies in whose nest the parasitic cuckoo lays their eggs. The female cuckoo times all of this just right. She can actually hold her egg and prevent herself from giving birth to that egg for a day or so, and she times it perfectly to plant it in the nest of the host bird 
so that her nestling is the first one to hatch. And it's amazing how the cuckoo egg fits in with those of their host. One of the things that seems to be important most of the time is that the egg color and size is reasonably the same as the host parent. An interesting fact in that regard is that the brown babbler that's found in Central Africa has a host species that lays light blue eggs, and so does the brown babbler in that part of the range. But in northern Nigeria, the same host species lays light pink eggs, and in that area, the brown babbler lays light pink eggs. So it's very interesting how the brown babbler and its African host species has adapted together. Now, let's turn our attention to the Galapagos Islands, where Dr. Cumming introduces us to a band of ferocious little finches. There is one type of finch, which obviously from its history had to have adapted from a pool of other finches, of the total population of finches. They become blood-sucking finches. That's an interesting concept, isn't it? But they're sort of a, a flying piranha. They peck at the base of the feathers on the tail of some of the big seabirds while they're on their nests and on the ground, and that causes them to bleed, and then they utilize that blood. So what's this all mean? Blood-sucking birds, killer cuckoos, threatened cutthroat trout, and predator-prey dominance? Is this simply evolution or a corruption of God's creation? Well, Dr. Cumming talks about the predator-prey aspect of creation after sin entered the world. Since the fall, this decaying principle has caused many systems to deviate from the intended relationship, and now they exhibit predatorial relationship. I like to think about it as part of God's plan. God says, I've designed it this way. I've made it such that all flesh has a commonality of how it's made, but it has a signature which makes it very unique and specific. And I've built a whole ecosystem. I think Psalm 104, for example, explains the relationship of plants and animals and the environment and very nicely puts it all into these systems of the water cycle and, and uh, the relationship of how they interact with one another. God is very much involved in the design of the support system for humans and for other organisms such that there is this balance, there is this harmony and unity in the environment. Now you say, predator prey, is that harmony and unity? Well, that's the way God designed it, to do these things. Now in some cases, there could be a degradation in a species in the sense they lose functions they used to have and are now occupying a niche which they were not intended to have. Dr. England says we won't always have animals that invade other animals. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 65, it's looking ahead to another day where it states that the wolf and the lamb will graze together and a lion shall eat straw like the ox and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall do no evil or harm in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. And the Lord calls this evil and harm. Now, according to evolution, predation and parasitism is just a way of life. It's not evil, nor is it necessarily harm. In that point of view, it's just survival of the fittest, as Darwin explained. But if we look at it from a creation point of view, that it was designed by God, then we take a whole different point of view on it. 
So we know that this condition of the invasion of the predators and the parasites is not a permanent condition, nor was it what God really intended for his creation. But it came about because of the evil that entered the creation through man's sin. But until the time that the Lord Jesus Christ makes all things new, it is vitally important that we are good stewards of God's creation. Well, what's so important about the fish? What's so important about the osprey and the grizzly bear and etc., etc.? Pretty soon, you're left in a world full of concrete and you're standing there by yourself. We wouldn't survive that way. And uh, that's not God's plan either. God created a creation. He called it good. He called it very good. And he has a plan for it. And he has a redemption. We've only seen the fallen creation, creation living under a curse with the invaders. But if you could imagine a creation that God in the beginning said it was good. And that is the kind of creation we do look forward to. As our program comes to a close, we hope that you've been encouraged. It's our desire at ICR to show that the Bible can be trusted, both historically and scientifically, and to give facts that will build your faith. As Christians, we need to understand the scientific basis for our beliefs. We pray that this program will aid you in your discovery of science and the Bible. You know, most people aren't aware that today there are thousands of scientists that are convinced of the truth of biblical creation and not evolution. Our non-denominational ministry aims to restore and strengthen the Genesis foundations of the Christian faith. If you've enjoyed today's edition of Science, Scripture, and Salvation, a Creation Radio Journal, why not visit us on the web to find out more about the work of ICR. The address is www.icr.org. Again, www.icr.org. Science, Scripture, and Salvation, a Creation Radio Journal, is a production of ICR. For the Institute for Creation Research, I'm Chris O'Brien. Thanks for tuning in.